welcome to The Good Enough Mother. My name is Sophie. I am a mother and a motherhood studies sociologist. I believe that we need broad social and cultural change in our societies in order to adequately support the mother to feel empowered, held, revered and respected in our society and culture. I have conversations here with experts and change makers who want to expand the conversation that we're having about motherhood. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to another episode of The Good Enough Mother podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah McKay. Sarah is a neuroscientist and science communicator, and she simplifies brain science for health, well-being, performance, and creativity. Sarah completed her Master's of Science and PhD in Neuroscience at Oxford University. And after relocating to Australia and completing five years of a postdoc research project on spinal cord injury, Sarah hung up her lab coat to establish Think Brain which offers online professional development training in applied neuroscience and brain health. In 2019, Sarah hosted an episode of ABC Catalyst, this is in Australia, exploring brain health, biohacking, and longevity. Sarah's first book, The Women's Brain Book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones, and Happiness, was published in 2018. And her second book, Baby Brain, The Surprising Neuroscience of How Pregnancy and Motherhood Sculpt Our Brains and Change Our Minds for the Better, was published this year in 2023. This conversation is one that navigates and speaks to this science in Sarah's book. I pull out the sections of the book that most resonated with me and that I found most fascinating and interesting. And we have a really rich and exploratory conversation on baby brain and the really new, exciting, interesting and revolutionizing research that we now have access to about how the brain changes when we become mothers. So enjoy this episode, check out the show notes and the webpage for key quotes and moments from the episode. There are also some key quotes that I've loved from Sarah's book that I've shared on the episode webpage. Enjoy. So thank you for being here with me, Sarah. I have so many things that I wanna talk to you about in this conversation. So let's see how much we can move through. But I really am looking forward to another conversation with you and to see what comes of it. So thank you for being here and for doing this work. Oh, well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this, because one of the reasons I chose to write this book was I knew there would be so many conversations that would come after that. That's sort of my favorite part. So thanks for indulging me. No, I hear you. Well, tell us a little bit about what brought you to the place of writing a book on baby brain. How did this interest come about for you? Yeah. So I suppose there's sort of three, not competing, but three ideas that led me down this track. And the first was just following for the last five or six years since I wrote my first book, really looking at the female brain through the lifespan, but continuing to follow the neuroscience that was emerging from research labs around the world on these various topics around women's brain health and particularly these significant neurological shifts we see in puberty during pregnancy and motherhood and menopause. And I could see that following closely the pregnancy motherhood matrescent space, that there was some very, very exciting new neuroscience research emerging from that, really starting, I suppose, around 2015, 2016. And what was interesting is coming at that from the perspective of a neuroscientist, seeing the research emerging, the stories that I was seeing being told around motherhood between women themselves, the kind of, I suppose, more colloquial or cultural references that we were making to motherhood, pregnancy and our brain were still very much stuck 
with the same stories we've been telling ourselves for decades. It's almost as if pregnancy and motherhood in the brain is synonymous with cognitive decline, emotional instability. It was all very negative. And that was in such stark contrast to the neuroscience I was seeing emerge from that. And so the sort of idea about a book started bubbling away. And this concept of baby brain, which I use as this kind of all-encompassing umbrella word to describe the negative impacts of pregnancy and motherhood on our brain or how women just choose, that's the sort of word that women choose to describe their experience. That was something I had never personally experienced. My boys, I've got two teenage boys, they're now 13 and a half and 15. So I was pregnant 15, 16 years ago and I had never heard of baby brain and it wasn't anything I experienced. And I guess I wanted to explore that paradox too was the reason I didn't experience that because I didn't expect to experience it during pregnancy or motherhood. I thought that that was just sort of a bit of a personal take on this paradox. We're seeing this amazing, interesting neuroscience emerging, but it's contrasting with the experiences of many women. So what's going on? It's so interesting. And I wonder, you know, as listeners receive this, I imagine that we're reflecting on our own experiences. Mm. If we are mothers of what that has been like for mm. us, and did we experience memory loss or water? What was that about? Mm. And what else is contextually going on in our lives as well at the same time that we come into motherhood? Mm. But you say in your book, when we look at the data, there is no evidence for memory loss. And you say, herein <laughs> lies the paradox. Mm. While most mothers claim to experience baby brain, memory loss is rarely detected in objective cognitive testing in the laboratory. So what does the testing find? Can you tell us a bit about what the evidence says? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. And I think I'll say, you know, women are perhaps using the words women claim to experience memory loss as perhaps the wrong way to phrase it. Perhaps I would have written that slightly different now that you've read that, read that out loud to me. But in short, around 80% of women say, hey, I experience baby brain. And by that, they mean I'm forgetful. I have an inability to pay attention. I can't kind of stay on task. I just feel fuzzy and unfocused. And they're reporting that both during pregnancy and during early motherhood. And look, I've got friends with teenagers who say they're still experiencing baby brain and even had a grandmother approach me the other day saying that. So the research is really looking at these two points in time during pregnancy and then perhaps in the first days, weeks and months of motherhood. Now, what's interesting is when we get women, we bring them into the research lab and we sit them down and usually it's nice and quiet and calm and they're usually alone and they haven't got their toddlers with them. We're like, here, we're going to get you to submit to this battery of cognitive tests, which are various types of very well-established cognitive tests that look at things like memory for words, memory for numbers, ability to navigate your way through a maze, memory for a story you were told yesterday, lots of different aspects of cognition. And what we find is that throughout pregnancy and early motherhood, we do not find any evidence whatsoever that we are seeing significant cognitive decline or memory loss in these women. There is one point in pregnancy in which we do sometimes in some women in some studies detect a tiny drop in the score that they may present in terms of quite complex cognitive problem solving. They might score like a point two less than women who are not pregnant. And that happens to be, if we see that, we see that in the third trimester of pregnancy. We don't see anything in the early stages of motherhood, and we typically don't see that during pregnancy, the first two trimesters. That said, many, many studies find nothing 
at any point in pregnancy. And we've also got research, and we can perhaps talk about that a bit later on, looking specifically in the third trimester of pregnancy that finds memory enhancement in pregnant women versus non-pregnant women. So overall, we can say we're not detecting broad-scale cognitive decline, such as what we'd see if someone was experiencing dementia or Alzheimer's disease or even really extreme levels of stress. We're not seeing that at any point, but women are reporting that they are experiencing that. So we've got this real paradox Mm -hmm. here where women's subjective experiences are not matching what we're picking up in the research lab. I will say, first and foremost, that it's really, really, really good news that we're not detecting this because it would be dreadful if we were going in and we were saying, yes, we are detecting broad-scale cognitive decline in all pregnant women and women experiencing early motherhood. We're not, but I think what is interesting is start to explore why do we see this paradox between the experiences of women and what we're picking up in the research lab. And there's perhaps a, a number of different avenues of research that have started to explore that. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Is mm. that we want to actually be celebrating this because if we were to find <laughs> that there was cognitive decline in early motherhood, as you've said in parts of your book, that would actually be really problematic because <laughs> it can contribute to gender discrimination, right? Space absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And certainly when I first started thinking about this idea before I started exploring the carefully done research, I kind of went in with my neuroscience hat on saying, when we see phenomenon like this, it's usually useful to to think about that from an evolutionary perspective. I mean, what would be Mother Nature's purpose or what would be the adaptive benefit of memory loss and pregnancy and motherhood? And I kind of couldn't see any kind of adaptive reason why it would benefit the human species to have the mothers become less cognitively able during pregnancy or less cognitively able during early motherhood. And certainly if we look outside of humans and we look at the rest of the mammalian kingdom, there's a lot of research done. You know, you put a rat through a maze, you know, you provide ecologically relevant cognitive challenges for various animals. We can observe them in the wild or we can test them in the research lab. And we just don't see any cognitive decline. In fact, we often see cognitive enhancement. So Mm -hmm. we see animals that have to hunt And, you know, the predators, they get swifter and faster and better at predation. And we see animals that perhaps have to remember where the seeds and nuts are are hidden. They get better at navigating their way. They have improved enhancement, proved enhanced memory for spatial navigation. So when we kind of look at these animals in these ecologically relevant ways, we see cognitive enhancement. It really only seems to be us humans who report that there's something else going on. And I think that's really interesting is... And then I went on with this personal perspective of are we expecting to forget? And is that why we forget? Have we been primed to forget or is there something else going on? Yeah, so fascinating. And I want us to move to talking about the enhancement things Mm. in a little bit, but to hover a little bit more on this point, Mm. because I think whenever we've got this juncture, I suppose, between what data is telling us and mm. what women are telling us in a mm. kind of qualitative sense versus the quantitative data, yeah. if you know, we can put it that starkly. I'm always interested in going, okay, well, what are we missing here? Yeah. And I wonder if, so if I were to put it to you and then maybe you just come back and tell me what you think and what the research says, that perhaps it's about essentially looking at the impacts of patriarchal motherhood and our broader cultural conditioning and also conditions. So perhaps there's that level and you've referenced others who talk about this in the book of Mm. the kind of cultural expectation is of baby brain. But then there is also looking at the intense mental load that Mm. women in early motherhood and beyond are expected to carry, the ways we're isolated in mothering our babies. How does sleep deprivation figure this? Mm. I mean, I'm interested. Like, So what do you think about the cultural conditions versus kind of what's happening 
physiologically within the body as well. Yeah, and I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. So it doesn't appear to be some neurological issue in play. It appears to be something else. And and if you want to call it patriarchal motherhood or whatever language you use that kind of works here. So researchers have kind of gone in and started to explore this space. One really interesting study that came out of Monash University in Melbourne looked at this and they were interested in exploring, I suppose you could call it the mental load of motherhood, this idea that when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel stressed, when you feel socially unsupported, when you are experiencing poorer well-being, does that contribute to this perception of baby brain? And that certainly was the case. So there was a very strong correlation between women experiencing low well-being and sitting under that low well-being umbrella, what I just said, I'm not socially supported, I'm not getting enough sleep, I just don't feel like I've got things together those women were far more likely to report that they also experienced baby brain, the women who were feeling healthy and well and able to kind of keep things together, so to speak. So there's a definite contribution there. And, you know, we could probably carry that on to take a look at this idea of the mental load of motherhood. And I think that's a really interesting one because, again, if we think about memory from the perspective of how the brain works, memory depends on what information we can take in and what we filter out. And when there is a lot going on, as when you're a mother, when you're overwhelmed and you simply can't do it all, you simply can't take all of the information in and filter the appropriate information out. So your memory, in a way, does become disrupted. And it's not because of a neurological deficit. It's just because you're trying to do it all. And I think it was you that said this tag of the superwoman or the supermum kind of suits society in a way because, you know, there's less need for then everyone to kind of help her because apparently she can do it all. Perhaps what baby brain is, is women sort of describing that experience of not being able to do it all. It's just this it's this kind of suitable, like the super mom suits everyone. Perhaps baby brain suits everyone. Because if it's a neurological, no one can do anything about it. We don't need to help. <laughs> yeah. Um, so on that point, and then I wanted to circle back to something else that you've mentioned there, yeah. but it reminds me of a section in your book. You quote author Catherine Ellison and you say, in her book, The Mummy Brain, How Motherhood Makes Us Smarter, she traces the history of baby brain from its inception in the 1960s when mm. women entered the workplace in droves. So this change brought new scrutiny from others and a new self-consciousness from mm. others. Mm. The same women who fought for equality in employment simultaneously claimed they were cognitively impaired. Mm. And when I read that, it reminded me of some research and Professor Andrea O'Reilly, I think, first noticed this correlation of I think this was based in Australia, actually, looking at post-World War II and when essentially we had lots of women go into paid work during the war and then needing to almost find a way to move those women back out of the workforce. That coincided with the rise of motherhood martyrdom. So the idea Mm. that in order to be a good mother, you need to be intensively mothering your children. So there's this kind of correlation between and whenever we see these steps forward in our sex-based rights or greater freedom or autonomy, it's interesting, and I won't say it for sure, but it, there seems to be this almost pushback when it comes to the motherhood space. Mm. What do you make of yeah. that? I think that's so interesting because any brain is functioning within a cultural context and there's just so many inputs. I talk about, you know, we've got biological bottom-up inputs, but we've got outside and cultural and social expectations. And then we have the top-down meaning we make of that. And sometimes from the inside, the meaning we make, it's hard to tease out where is this coming from. And I think this is probably related to this idea that 
you know, as I said, we have these enormous neurological shifts of puberty, pregnancy, and menopause. And it doesn't matter whether your hormones are kind of going up or they're enormously high or they're kind of wittering away and dying off. We tend to blame our brains and blame our hormones when things go wrong. And we've been primed from girlhood to do that. And you would say that's this kind of patriarchal kind of, you know, world that we live in. And again, when we're going through pregnancy and motherhood, when we don't feel we can kind of cope, it's almost like we've been primed to kind of, oh, let's blame our hormones. And now we've kind of got another language or other words to use, oh, let's blame my baby brain, internalize it at some neurological deficit. I can't do anything about it. That's quite a suitable situation for the patriarchy to have mothers functioning in. Yeah, we blame, blame ourselves. No one else needs to do anything when really it's probably... I've come to believe that I think it's a phrase that's really describing the sort of social context women are mothering in. Okay. Um, So in other words, like part of what I'm hearing you say is baby brain is used as scapegoat essentially for copying the reasons why mothers are struggling when it's actually to do with other things. I also, Mm. I just wanted to come back to when you're explaining and maybe talk a bit more about what we see in the research of what happens to the brain. But when you mentioned in the studies, you get women in and I imagine, you know, all the studies look different in terms of how they're carried out. But for example, if I'm sitting here and I'm having this conversation with you, I'm able to put my full attention and energy into being present in this interaction. Mm -hmm. If I had my daughter sitting in the corner coloring in and she didn't distract me at all, she was just sitting there coloring in. I could not be fully present here because I'm mothering at the same time as being Mm -hmm. present energetically with her. And so I'm wondering, and this is drawing on Sarah Ruddock's idea of maternal thinking, like how does this play out in the research or what do you think about Mm. this in terms of our split focus or Mm. attention? Absolutely. And this is this idea that I said memory will depend on attention and we can't multitask. We can only task switch. And this is certainly an idea that's been discussed for quite a while as to why We've got this paradox between women saying, hey, I'm forgetful, and then come into my research lab and sit down and have a cup of tea and, you know, be cool, calm and collected, and then you ace the tests because you haven't got any distractions. So you're testing your brain in a very kind of cool, calm and collected way versus, you know, using your brain in the context of, you know, the mental load and all of the other things that go on. So there's that contextual aspect to it as well. Absolutely. I think we're coming at these ideas just from using different language. (laughs) We're kind of coming to the same conclusion here. And this is, you know, I think why these conversations are so important and having these interdisciplinary conversations are so important because for so, so long, and it's so frustrating to look at the literature, neuroscientists hear women say, hey, I experienced baby brain. They go, oh, it must be a cognitive deficit. Hey, let's just do our battery of cognitive tests. And let's do 20 tests. Oh, we found one where we found a little bit of a lower score in the third trimester of pregnancy. Baby brain is real. Women have cognitive issues. And that's and that when we look at the research literature from a broader lens, we're not seeing cognitive decline, but no one's then taking that step further out and saying, hey, can we look at the aspects of society and culture and expectation and you know, what we've been primed to believe. We've been so slow and so remiss within neuroscience to get to that point. We're so busy being reductionist, we forget to step back and look at the bigger picture. Mm. Um, And Mm. perhaps even if a neuroscientist and a sociologist sat down and had a conversation, (laughs) who knows where you you might end up and where the research then could funnel off into a far more pragmatic, I think, and looking at and asking questions and answering questions that are 
much more relevant. Yes, um, and your book does this. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, your book does this, right? And, And actually, not only is it the case that, hey, it's actually not this terrible bad news about baby brain. There's actually some really exciting mm. things to talk about as well, which mm. which we'll get into. But on what you've just said about having conversations, I wonder, can you quickly share with us the story that you told in your book of actually what led to the first kind of paper <laughs> and research coming out on baby yeah, brain? Yeah, I love this story because I was familiar with this research study that was published from Elseline Hoxima, Erica Barbara Muller and Susanna Carmona, which came out in Nature Neuroscience sort of late 2016. And it remains to date my favorite neuroscience study ever. And it was the first study using MRI, using brain imaging to look at how women's brains changed across their first pregnancy. And people are like, well, what were people doing before 2016? Well, science takes a long time. And the, the sort of the idea was conceived back in 2009 when these three women were sitting in a car and they were driving from their research lab into the city they were in. Barcelona at the time and Erica had just finished her master's thesis and so they were kind of having their little conversations they were all in their early 30s having their chat chat on the way into the bar to celebrate and then Susanna said to Erica Susanna was driving Susanna told me this story Susanna said to Erica or oh, what are you going to do next in life and Erica says oh you know I think I might have a baby I might become a mother and then Susanna said well I wonder what will happen to your brain and they all laughed and they went I wonder what will happen to Erica's brain when she becomes pregnant and they were working in a brain imaging research lab and they started chatting and they were like, you know what? We don't actually know what happens to women's brains when they become pregnant. Now, was that question being asked today? They would have all just opened up their iPhones and started scrolling through, you know, medical research papers and Googling answers and looking at PubMed. But back then you couldn't look up PubMed on your phone. I don't think iPhones were in common use back in 2009 if they were even invented. And they became so intrigued by the idea in their car ride that they did a U-turn, they didn't go into the city, they went back to their research lab so they could research this idea on their computers. And they sort of sat there for half the night exploring the research, finding nothing and realising they were in this kind of perfect position to ask this question. They were in a neuroimaging research lab. They approached the head of that lab and said, hey, can we explore this idea, sort of you know, using our skills, using the technology in the lab and the head of the research lab went, yeah, sure, go ahead. I'll support you to do this. So that was 2009 and they finally published that paper in 2016. They kind of came up with the research plan that night. And I just think that's such a great example. And certainly what we see more and more of is as, now there's always been gender equality in the undergraduate levels of neuroscience. When I was back in the early 90s, started my neuroscience undergraduate. There were as many girls as there were boys, young men as there were young women in the class. But we're now just sort of seeing this generation of well-trained neuroscientists making their way up through the research ranks and being able to ask questions, get research funding coming in. And this is where we're starting to see within the last decade these really exciting research studies coming out, answering questions that really matter to women. What happens to my brain during pregnancy? You know, how does the pill impact my brain? Does my brain change through the menstrual cycle? You know, how does motherhood change and shape me? And then, you know, old women are being are starting to ask, you know, what happens during menopause? Does my brain change? And it's so exciting to see these questions being asked and answered by female neuroscientists. Mm, wonderful. Thank mm. you for sharing that story. And I love the ways in which there are many ways that we talk about how motherhood is a catalyst for the birthing and creation of many other things mm. other than 
protect our children and that's an example yet again of how a conversation about even intentions on or reflections on becoming a mother then kind of prompted this explosion of a new knowledge. And it Um, certainly shaped that particular research paper because those researchers used themselves as well. So they had to scan the brains of women who had never before experienced a pregnancy, then go through pregnancy and then scan their brains afterwards. And over time, all those women have now included themselves in that research study, Mm -hmm. which I think is really quite lovely you know, to see that they ran into a few hitches though. They kind of thought, oh, we're in our early 30s. It'll be really easy to find lots of women who've never had a pregnancy before and are planning to get pregnant, who will then fall pregnant, whose brains we can scan afterwards. And many people will know that human fertility is not that predictable. So (laughs) it did take a while to gather the right kind of data and to be able to analyze it, make meaning of it. Yeah. And not to put you on the spot, because I can link the paper, but is it possible to kind of give us a little bit of a summary of what that paper said? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, as I say, it's one of my favorite neuroscience research papers of all time. So they gathered together a cohort of women who had never before experienced a pregnancy. And this is really important because a lot of brain scanning studies that have been done looking at pregnancy don't always include women who've never had a pregnancy. Sometimes they're looking at brain changes in the second, third or fourth pregnancy. So it muddies the data a bit. So they had a group of women who'd never before experienced pregnancy, scanned their brains, looked at the structure, looked at how the brain kind of wired up. And then immediately after their first pregnancy, they scanned their brains again to see whether there were any structural changes. And they also scanned the male, all of these were heterosexual couples. They also scanned the male partners of these women before and immediately after that first pregnancy. And that was really important and a use. They came up with that on that first night when they didn't go to the pub. And that's really useful and important because that enables us to sort of tease out whether changes if we saw any due to pregnancy or whether they due to parenting because the fathers were involved in the parenting. And what they saw was there were very, very striking structural changes in the brains of all these women and all their brains changed in the same way. And the significant changes were seen in grey matter, which is the kind of the wrinkly covering that you see over the, when you look at a brain from the outside, that's called the cortex. And the cortex got slightly thinner, and I can explain why that's not a problem in a moment, but particularly in regions of the brain involved with social cognition. So involved with thinking and feeling and interpreting other people's social cues and parts of the brain involved with theory of mind, what is someone else thinking, and empathy. What is someone else feeling and can I feel that way? And these changes were very highly correlated. The degree of cortical change in these social cognition regions were then correlated to how tuned in the mothers were to their baby's social cues. And what social cues are babies born with? They're born with cute little faces. So they showed these women photos of their baby's faces or babies can cry. That's actually their most sort of relevant social cue. So listening to the sound of their babies crying and the changes in the brain were quite strongly correlated to the degree with which the mothers responded to their baby's social cues. And just to kind of touch back on that idea, I said that the, the cortex of the brain was getting thinner. And I'm always really careful when I describe that, we hear volume reduction or thinner, we think that that means degeneration. Well, it doesn't. We see this during the teenage years. We see this during adolescence. So remember, matrescence is kind of like adolescence and during motherhood. We see the same brain changes. And we see when brains change in response to experience, we often see streamlining or refining. It's like tuning and pruning of connections based on, based on some sort of experience that has been had. And often we see 
this streamlining paralleled with the emergence of more refined behaviours. So in this case, we're probably seeing streamlining of the social brain and the emergence of greater empathy and theory of mind and ability to read social cues. Mm, So is it an accurate thing for us to say then that the maternal brain becomes more responsive, flexible, efficient, absolutely. great capacity for empathy. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So other studies have gone, so we just looked here at the structure and how the structures change and other studies have gone in and sort of taken a look at how do different parts of the brain communicate with each other. And the maternal brain is definitely exactly what you said. It's more flexible, it's more responsive, it's more efficient. It's almost as if pregnancy has prepared the brain for the act of motherhood. So we think about pregnancy as, you know, we carry the baby, we nurture the baby when it's inside us, but our body is also preparing to nurture that baby once it's been born if we choose to breastfeed. But pregnancy is also sort of changing and sculpting the brain for the act of motherhood. And and primarily and initially, you know, this is kind of Mother Nature's mandate to respond almost, you know, with the sole focus on reading these little babies' cues. And so one of the researchers who was involved in this first study, who was in the car in Barcelona, Elsleen Hoxma, she's Dutch, she's gone back to the Netherlands and runs her own research lab now. She's carried on with some of these studies and has been able to narrow down that the changes take place, interestingly, during the third trimester, which is interesting because if we do detect cognitive changes in the third trimester too, and it's primarily driven by estradiol, which is the type of estrogen hormone that we see skyrocketing going to these sky high levels during pregnancy so it's definitely a hormonally driven pregnancy experience that's shaping these brains we didn't see the same brain changes in the fathers at all and um, we're not seeing the same brain changes taking place in women who have perhaps adopted or fostered children in a mothering but haven't gone through pregnancy I feel both excited and worried at the same time, Sarah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Why is that? Okay. So on the one hand, I think it is incredibly, this is part of the reason why we need to talk about mothers and the experiences of mothers as a separate category, right? It's a separate social role. It's a separate category because there are things that we go through, which are because of our role and experience as mothers. And you say in your book, Maternal brain neuroscientists are calling for a reframing of baby brain conversations to include cognitive reorganization, adaptation, and as a time when the brain is efficient, flexible, and primed to acquire experience-dependent skills and knowledge. Mm. And that's incredible, right? Mm -hmm. Like we need to be able to completely, which is what your book is doing, create a cultural revolution to switch out our Mm -hmm. understanding of what baby brain means. Absolutely. It's actually an asset, right? It's not something that holds us back based on what we know from Mm. what the brain does. At the same time, how do we be careful to make sure that that fact doesn't slide into, well, it's your responsibility to do all of the mothering because your Mm. brain was primed for it and mine isn't, therefore it's all on you as the mother. Can you talk to us about other changes that happen? Yeah, gosh, that's, that's the really tricky one. I think one way to think about this is to think of, motherhood or pregnancy priming our brains for motherhood so you go through a pregnancy and you hold your baby in your arms for the first time and anyone who's gone through that experience and then discusses it there could be this enormous range of responses that we have so you can and I 
throughout the book, I have in little italics, I surveyed all the people that kind of follow my newsletters and I got hundreds and hundreds of beautiful, funny, heartfelt responses from people describing these experiences. And I said, how did you feel when you held your baby in your arms for the first time? And some people said, I felt like I'd known him my whole life. Other people were like, holy shit, what have I done? Other people felt ambivalence, fear, nothing. Other people fell madly in love. And I think the idea is that pregnancy doesn't absolutely ensure that the moment we hold our baby in our arms, we know exactly what to do. Rather, our brain has been primed by pregnancy to learn really, really quickly. So I like to think of it as it's gone into a a sort of a critical window of experience-dependent learning. In much the same way, a toddler's brain goes into a critical period of experience-dependent learning to learn language. The brain is ready to learn language, but it still needs the input of spoken word to be able to master language. So mothers' brains are kind of born (laughs) into this state of being able to learn by experience very, very quickly. We still need to have those experiences. Often we have to have those experiences modelled to us or taught to us by our mothers, by our sisters, by other people who are around us. But I think that that doesn't mean that the only brain that can learn by experience is a new mother's brain. It simply means that that process is kind of, in theory, biologically easier but it doesn't, one, guarantee it. It doesn't mean that another brain can't learn to respond to a baby's cues. And we certainly have kind of, since that first study came out, taken a closer look, and I think this is interesting, taken a closer look at those male brains, those father's brains that were used as that comparison. Because compared to the mother's brains, they didn't change structurally at all. But when they've kind of gathered more data in, into the data set and looked very, very closely at the father's brains, they did actually see some tiny structural reorganization and tiny structural changes taking place and interestingly the changes in the father's brains were experience dependent so the more the fathers were engaged in parenting the more their brains changed they weren't Mm. primed by pregnancy but they certainly can still learn and change by experience so I think it's safe to say that all adults (laughs) all competent adults you know have the capacity to learn how to respond to babies It may just mean that Mother Nature's kind of put a bit of a mandate in place that it's going to be slightly easier, or she's hoping it'll be slightly easier for those mothers. Mm, I love that. But we still need need the people Mm. around us. You know, we're not, even if we look at, and I talk about this briefly in the book, the experience of gorillas in captivity. Mm. You've got a pregnant gorilla in captivity. If she's never before observed another gorilla mother, she doesn't know how to look after that baby when it's born. She might kind of have a few instincts that she can follow, but she's not really going to know. And so they sometimes in zoos, they'll get human mothers who are breastfeeding to come and breastfeed in front of that gorilla mother to model nursing to her. Mm. So she's still having to learn by experience, even when she's in the animal kingdom. So, you know, I think there's that component in there too. We still need the support around us. Yeah. It reminds me in your book, you talk about your model bottom up, outside in, top Mm. down. And so you use the example of our top-down thoughts influence our bottom-up biology. So we can think about our baby and if we're breastfeeding, that can trigger a letdown. Bottom-up, yep. Yep. Tell me if I'm getting any of this wrong. But outside-in social connections impact your top-down mood. So Mm -hmm. we may be primed in a particular way, but if we go into motherhood and we have no support, we don't have people to model how to caretake, then that Mm -hmm. impacts us and makes us vulnerable to postnatal depression. Mm -hmm. and then there are bottom-up pregnancy hormones 
And could you talk to this, how they impact auditory brain network so how yeah. does, how does how, yeah how does that work well I think we know this is absolutely the case in animals and I suspect it's the case in humans but I'm kind of putting a couple of studies together here so forgive me for a bit of artistic license but certainly what we see in mice and rats the little scurrying animals of the lab when they become mothers we see that oxytocin that the hormone oxytocin during pregnancy and also when they're nursing their young when they're lactating alters how their auditory cortex functions such that they are able to hear the sounds of baby mice crying. And baby mice have got this kind of sort of hypersonic cry that's invisible to our ears. We can't hear it. And male mice and other mice can't hear it either. But when their brains have been primed by oxytocin, the mother mice can hear these babies making this particular crying sound. We've also seen from other studies that have been done using EEG, which is a different type of way of recording brainwaves from humans, that how we respond to the sounds of babies crying alters during pregnancy and into early motherhood. So we become far more responsive. We almost become hyper-responsive to the sound of a baby's cry. And I suspect this is why when, and this is especially if you're the birth mother, and I know I experienced this, you'll be sound asleep. And then suddenly you wake wide awake up at three in the morning and you lie there and you don't hear anything. And then half a minute later, you might hear baby go and make kind of a little meow. And then a minute later, they'll start crying. It's almost as if you woke up before they were crying. So many people say, I woke up before they cried. It's almost like I knew they were about to cry. But I suspect the little me that they made, the wee meow that they made before they started crying, woke you from your deep sleep because your auditory cortex is so primed in to hear a baby's cry so again we've got these these bottom-up hormones that may have also shaped the functioning of our auditory brain to tune in to respond to a baby even when we're sound asleep it's just so interesting and it's so exciting that actually this so much of this is emerging and it's happening coming out right now mm-hmm. and I think there's so much opportunity here for us and as mothers listening to receive what lands with us and to reflect on how that is connected to our own experience or not But something that you've said that I want to pick up on and part of of your book, you say, uh, this is, I know we both love this topic, the brain to brain synchrony. You say, during fleeting coordinated precious social moments, a mother's brain tunes her baby's brain to hers. Together, a mother child unit or dyad share an intimate biological, social and psychological relationship, almost like a two person dance of behavior and biology. Researchers who record and analyze diet interactions see the harmonization play out in the synchrony of heartbeats, breathing, hormone release, and brain activity. So Mm. talk to me about brain-to-brain synchrony. Yeah, I absolutely love this idea. And we've been really familiar with the idea of person-to-person synchrony when we think about We've started looking at it here in terms of dyads, but if we just look at like two other people interacting or groups of people interacting, we've sort of started to learn that, I mean, we forget we're mammals, I think, so often we forget we're mammals, that when we kind of are marching in time or dancing together or sharing attention or kind of having some shared experience, our biology starts to synchronize. And we see this, as as I say in this, between mothers and infants, but also between groups of people in terms of heart rate and breathing rate and even hormone release. We see that this is biological synchrony and then tracking alongside that biological synchrony, people will report feeling trust or feeling rapport or in a big group of people feeling this kind of collective effervescence. 
So, you know, you've, you've got 50,000 people at a Harry Styles concert, you know, they almost have this kind of collective spiritual experience because they all become in, sort of synchronized as they share their attention and sing along together. And we can see that biological and sort of reported synchrony, feelings of synchrony in dyads. So from early infancy between mothers and children, and we can sort of track that as these dyads kind of develop all the way through until those infants are adults themselves. This is some really, really lovely research which has emerged. So we've got the biological synchrony, but if we record from two brains, a baby's brain and a mother's brain, we see that their brains sort of start to synchronize, particularly when they are having these little sort of social interactions. And, it, you know, if it's with a newborn baby, I mean, it's not that you're sitting there having a conversation with them, but, you know, you may have them propped up on your knee and everyone, you know, you, I remember this so clearly, you're just so utterly captivated by this new little person that you've made. You know, they open their eyes and you open your eyes and you kind of start mimicking their facial expressions and then they learn to mimic yours. You've kind of got this little tiny social interaction sort of starting to emerge. And as that happens, our brains start to synchronize as well. And it's interesting, the studies that have been done following that brain-to-brain synchrony, you can see this kind of tracking the whole way through childhood, this kind of particular pattern within this dyad. We can see that it's, if it's well established, it can remain up until those those children are adults. Very, very new, this research, though. And the re- there's a couple of researchers, one of them, Victoria Leong, who's a researcher in Singapore. She's got this very analytical, she's such a sharp, smart woman, looking at, you know, what guides this synchrony? Is it, you know, she, as she said to me, it's not ESP. It's not like magic. We don't get two people synchronizing but she's starting to look at the role of eye gaze, the role of, you know, kind of face-to-face interactions, the role of olfaction, the role of smell. And that's when we realise how mammalian we really are when we hold a newborn in our arms and utterly devant that less like addictive, captivating smell our new babies have. You just can't get enough of it. You kind of want to eat, eat them all up. So, you know, eye-to-eye gaze plays a role in it. Smell plays a very strong role in it. You know, there's sort of the transmission through our senses is what synchronizes two people up. Mm, it's amazing. The patterns of the brain-to-brain synchrony, mm. it, it's a unique signature, is that right? So it will be different between your different children? Yeah, yeah, and that's really interesting. So if you've had more than one child, and I think, you know, you always turn it into your own little me search, how, does it, how is this relevant to me? I think about how do I interact with my oldest son versus my youngest son, and there are certain ways of, you know, behavior that this kind of little interpersonal signature that emerged quite young with each of them. And my oldest son has always been just so together and independent and capable, even from when he was a tiny baby and I breastfed him, he was the most efficient eater. And he's always, he's nearly six foot four and he's, he's 15, he's large and capable still. And he would eat and then he would be like, I have had my food. I've had enough mum. And then he would cry and it took me a bit of trial and error, learning by experience that that meant he had had enough of me cuddling him and he just wanted to be left alone just to digest his food for a moment. And he's always been like that. He's very engaging, but he's very he's still a very efficient eater and he's very together. He's very self-contained. He's very emotionally regulated, super smart. He's doing his HSC next year. We will not have to even, he's doing the HSC over two years. We won't have to worry about him. My next son was much more, 
cuddly and clingy like a little koala bear and he always wanted to be close and he always wanted to be cuddled and he's in year eight at school high school now but up until last year when he was in year seven he still loved to sleep in our bedroom the other guy wouldn't have come near me (laughs) but you know and our interactions and ways of being in conversations and physicality with each other is entirely different and if I was to record how our brainwaves were I can see And I can see how our relationships have carried through from infancy through to now having teenage boys. And they they kind of change, but they've changed in very different ways. And people that have kind of looked at biobehavioral synchrony are able to see that we carry these signatures through in terms of our biology. And now we're able to record from brainwaves. We can see that there's distinct patterns of how brains synchronize up when there's, you know, rapport and trust and attachment particularly within these, you know, these mother-infant dyads or mother-teenage-son dyads as they are now for me. (laughs) Thank you for sharing Mm. that because I think that there's something quite freeing about that and especially from hearing of mothers. I think when you're a mother, especially in the early years and say you have a two-year-old and a four-year-old and you're having, I don't know, behavioural challenges with the four-year-old and you're thinking, what have I done? What could I do different? There could be so much responsibility placed on the mother and there is a lot of responsibility on us, right? But I think it is helpful in hearing about experiences like you've just shared with us of the differences between your sons and connecting it with what's happening in the brain and in our bodies and in our social Mm. world to recognize that there is a level of agency that we have, but there's also so much that's happening that is outside and beyond our control. And it's not we, we don't actually have perhaps as much power as we think we do in shaping who they are. <laughs> I know. Well, me and my husband were always saying if we just had had the first, we would have thought, you know, because he's so smart and so capable and so together, he can be selfish and annoying. And, you know, sometimes we say it's like having a flatmate because he's never home. <laughs> and the other one we like, we worry because he never leaves the house. He's always here. And if we hadn't had the second one come along, we would have thought, oh, haven't we raised it quite? We're very great parents raising such a capable, young, independent man. Uh, Then the second child comes along and they just, they're just so different. But I think for me, what is interesting is to like, if I track all the way back, you can almost see that when they were tiny, tiny babies. I could say, I remember I would sit at my mother's group with my oldest son. And I remember first, when you finally kind of lift your eyes up and look out at other mothers in the first few months, it takes, it took a while. Well, I would lift and I'd go, oh, I'm the only one not holding my baby. <laughs> Makes him sound like he may be somewhere on the spectrum and he's absolutely not. He just didn't want to be, he just didn't want to be held after he'd been fed. And all these other mums would be holding their little babies in their arms and my son would be on the floor, be kind of waving to each other. And I'm glad that I had enough kind of wherewithal not to <laughs> think, oh gosh, I must be doing what they're all doing. But I remember noticing that, but I was driven by his needs I was just tuning into what he needed and wanted Mm. um it's kind of interesting and I know even my sister would she had children before me remember she came and she'd try and pick him up and she said he's really it's almost like his core goes down into the center of the earth she said he's really hard to pick up (laughs) he's not massively heavy but he's hard to pick up he just didn't kind of want to be held whereas the other one would climb up your leg and wrap around your neck you wouldn't even have to hold on to him yeah yeah. (laughs) so they're just all so different and I I think trusting that you I, I don't think it's like I'm choosing to parent this child in this way we're this kind of little biological ecosystem mm-hmm. and it's about yeah. tuning and responding and responding to each other and kind of giving what each one needs and sort of trusting that you know and I kind of felt like I was 
looking back on it, it wasn't, I'm not saying it was intuitive, but I was kind of responding in the way that that, what that child needed. Yeah. And I think Mm -hmm. something important to flag here that you do in your book is to remember when we're thinking about brain to brain synchrony and we're thinking about attunement and attachment that even the most, as you say, and we know this from Tronics research as well, right? That even the most healthy attachments, we're only synchronizing about a third of the time. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of misattunement that's happening and that misattunement is also important for the building of identity and resilience. Yeah, I think, yeah, and if I think about my oldest son, it's not the fact that he didn't always want to be held, but if he needed me, I was there. I was responding when he needed it. When he wanted to kind of get my attention back and engage, he was always very good at that. It's not about me being there, looking at him, focusing on him, holding him 100% of the time. It's about him learning, you know, that kind of, when there's a bit of mismatch, we can repair that connection. You know, we may be tuned out, but we can tune back in. And I think yeah. that that's a really important research, which has emerged is around, you know, the good enough mother. <laughs> that's your brand, right? It's, you know, we don't need to be perfect 100% of the time. But if we can be responsive, then that's useful. Yeah. And, and even more useful to be able to repair and come back into connection when there is inevitable mismatch. Yeah. And, you know, doesn't matter which point of parenting you're at, there's just there's some new challenge to learn. And gosh, you learn that in the teenage years because you spend a lot of time with my oldest one, not so much with my younger, sitting around waiting, <laughs> waiting for the call to, you know, waiting for the attention, waiting for the phone call, waiting for them to come and engage. Because a lot of the time in a completely developmentally normal way, they turn around and they walk out of the room when you walk in or they're not there and you've kind of got to sit and wait. And I just say, I just kind of keep the nest lined, try and keep, there's never enough food, they tell me. I try so hard to buy enough food for them and make enough food for them so it's there when they need it. But but to be ready to respond, you, I'm sure lots of mothers of teenagers just sort of waiting, 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 waiting for that little moment they turn around and they want to connect. You've got to be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if we can move into, as we move to the end of our conversation, some of the changes that you spoke about in your book of women's mother's brains Mm. throughout like beyond those early years of mothering right we're talking about your experience of mothering your teenagers you talk about in your book the fetal cell transfer Mm. is it micro micro chimerism yeah Yeah, tell us about that oh I love this idea so this is and I actually sort of you know it's really interesting how you kind of go down a research path but I went into that exploring this idea of I didn't experience, you know, baby brain. What was that? And there is some research showing that mothers of males are less likely to experience baby brain during pregnancy than mothers of females, which I thought was kind of curious. But it's one small study and it's never really been followed up on, which I think is kind of curious. I think it's pretty fascinating. But one of the ideas put forward was when was that there is transfer of fetal cells into the mother and maternal cells into the fetus across the placenta we think the placenta is almost kind of like this barrier it's not it's like an active interface and we see that there is a lot of fetal transfer and maternal transfer and then typically once the baby's born our bodies kind of clear up the fetal cells or the, the unborn baby's cells but there's always some left and they actually become embedded within our body and become functional we can find cells and brains and hearts and lungs not only in midlife, but all the way through into kind of the last stages of, of life in elderly women. And by and large, most of the studies have been looking at mothers of sons because we can very easily detect XY chromosomes within an XX or a female body. It's much harder to detect the female baby cells in their mother. 
and so that's this is one idea that we kind of and it's very comforting <laughs> and the mother of sons and teenage sons especially as they kind of turn around and walk out of the room when I walk in I've still got a little bit of their their biology that I'm carrying along inside of me so that's one lovely idea but we have got some research which is emerging and I think this is again this is really exciting because it's emerging because of new technology and new analysis and we're getting all of this really fascinating study data coming in now even using like AI and, and deep machine learning which freaks some people out but is really good for analyzing a lot of data all at once so we're able to kind of delve into these treasure troves these biobanks they're called which contain repositories of you know thousands and thousands and thousands of people's data including their brain scans and look to see can we detect if this is a woman who has experienced pregnancy in her 40s and 50s can we look at the brains of people in their 70s, 80s and 90s and see if there are traces of parenthood. Mm. And it turns out that we can in women in midlife and also in the elderly years, the sort of 70s and 80s and 90s, their brains are slightly younger looking than women who have never had a pregnancy or raised children. And that's kind of interesting. It's not like they're 20 years younger or 10 years younger. They're kind of about half a year to a year younger looking. So there's something in there about pregnancy or motherhood or both. We can't kind of tease them out that is in some way sort of building resilience into brains as they age. And so is it the hormones of pregnancy? We know estrogen is a brain enhancer. It's neuroprotective, builds resilience. Is it the hormones of pregnancy? It could be. Or is it this continual, you know, up-leveling and, you know, the cognitive enrichment and you know an emotional enrichment that comes from parenting you know from infancy all the way through until having adult children we can't kind of tease it out we don't know but yeah certainly when women have up to four children we see their brains looking younger once they have five or more that the youthful appearance of their brain kind of disappears and we think that may be because it's really stressful to have a large family and that the stress counteracts the <laughs> you know, that the enhancement of having a few. There's benefits, mm. yeah. It's fascinating and it's exciting to know that there's more possibilities to explore. And I So to, many more. <laughs> yeah, so many more. And something that I wanted to also just flag when you mentioned about the fetal cell transfer and that mm. sense of reassurance or kind of connectivity mm. in knowing that you have a part of your children with you, that this, it's the case, isn't it, that this is also true for women who have experienced miscarriage or yeah. It's yeah 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 which I think is a really lovely idea if that helps someone feel comforted I think that's a really lovely idea and we know that's the case because there have been xy cells found in women who have only had daughters but perhaps they've also had miscarriages and so the assumption is that they've miscarried male babies that their loss was of a son and that son's cells are still within them so I, and I've been told, uh, it's not a personal experience of my own, that that's a really comforting thought. So it's one of these kind of curious ways that some <laughs> some sort of strange scientific analysis gives a real, a real kind of, you know, just data like that can really comfort someone when they're yeah. going through some kind of grief. Yeah, mm. yeah. There's been so much here, Sarah. And I'm so grateful that you've done all of this work and done this research and that we are in this place that we are mm. in, in our history of understanding the brain and 
of having conversations about what it means to be a mother and Mm. what motherhood is in our society and culture because bringing all of these intersections together I think leads us to a place that is really exciting Mm. it's we're at Mm. a space of emergence where we're saying actually the brain look at all of the ways it changes isn't this incredible look at all of the ways that we can actually trace these changes throughout the lives Mm. of Mm. women you know Mm. for the rest of their lives Mm. I wonder if there's anything else that you feel called to share with us or would like to contribute or reflect on before we finish up yeah I just think it's great when you know, we can, I suppose, take the attitude that neuroscientists can be very reductionist and clinical, but I think it's really great when the research emerges and it really supports this really positive, affirming, empowering narrative. I'm just so glad that the research, while it may make women feel it's not supporting your experiences, actually giving you access to so many more ways to think about motherhood. And I'm so grateful that there's all of these women out there because the majority of this research is being done by female neuroscientists and a lot of them are mothers themselves. And it's really, really hard to succeed in neuroscience research as a career, let alone succeed as a female, let alone succeed as a mother. And if it wasn't for these women who have kind of toughed it out and who are now at the position to ask these questions that mean so much to all of us and that are doing great research and being able to share it, you know, we wouldn't be able to write books like this. We wouldn't be able to have conversations like this. The conversations would still be, as I say, focusing on negative decline and emotional instability. It's not the story. So I'm so grateful to all of those women who contributed to the book and took their time to explain the science to me. It's, I mean, for me, it's a joy to wake up every day and open up (laughs) research papers and, and read them. But, you know, thanks has to go to the, you know, it's always the shoulders of the giants that we stand upon and And that's all that the women in the research labs. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here, Sarah. And all of the details of your book are in the show notes. For those who are interested, go out and order your copy. And thank you for the work that you're doing in this space for this conversation. Well, thank you for the work you do as well. Thanks, Sarah. I hope you've resonated with something from today's episode. Please consider leaving the podcast a review to help me have these conversations reach more people. If you're someone who works with mothers, check out my online training, the Motherhood Studies Practitioner Certification, and you can head to my website for more information about my other services, drsophiebrock.com. Thank you for being here.